Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the final chapter of the Book of Mormon, Moroni 10. This is a real treat, this final chapter, this concluding capstone to the book, where Moroni could have taken any, any direction he wanted, but he chooses to say, I'm, I'm finishing my book. Remember, he said farewell to us a couple of times in the past, and then he's come back in and written some more. In this one, it feels like he knows this really is the, the final farewell. So he's going to couch his last teachings within the framework of eight exhortations. So you'll notice that he introduces these eight exhortations in verse 2. He says, and I seal up these records after I have spoken a few words by way of exhortation unto you. And then he opens verse 3 with, behold, I would exhort you. And then verse 4 has his second exhortation, verse 7, verse 8, verse 18, verse 19, 27, and 30. And so we're going to, to work our way through the chapter looking at each, each one of these exhortations one at a time. It's an interesting word. We don't usually use the word exhortation in our language today, at least in the most of the English-speaking world. Really fascinating word. So the core meaning of exhort is to encourage, to stimulate, to urge. And in particular, I like this word, courage, where the word core actually means heart. I want to put heart into your action. And so here he is after this long series of beautiful writings that we've been able to review over the year, What's the most important thing you would say if you were talking to people in the future? I want you to have a heart. I want you to be, feel encouraged. I want you to be stimulated to go out and act and go do something to believe. And as we talk through these exhortations that Moroni lists for us, just ask yourself, how is he giving me courage? How is he act, asking me to act, to be in step with God, to show my faith, by being stimulated and being urged to be focused on the core, the heart of what really matters. It's the love of God. So as Tyler goes through this, pay close attention, pay close attention to those exhortations. Excellent. Now let's jump into the first one. It's in verse three. Now, I need to I need to make something really clear. There's there's been a pattern for years in the church, and it's a good pattern, so don't throw it away, and don't think that we're trying to throw it away here, but the pattern has been this. Search, ponder, and pray. All associated with the Book of Mormon. So, search the Book of Mormon, ponder the Book of Mormon, pray about the Book of Mormon. It's a good pattern. We have a children's song in the, in the primary that's beautiful called Search, Ponder, and Pray. Uh, our missionaries encourage this with people who are interacting with the book for the first time. It's a great pattern. But let's look very 
carefully and closely at the wording that Moroni uses. Start in verse 3. Behold, I would exhort you that when ye shall read these things, if it be wisdom in God that ye should read them, that ye would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam, even down until the time that ye shall receive these things, and ponder it in your hearts. The power of words is remarkable because if you look at that little word right there, ponder it, you'll notice what he didn't write. He didn't say ponder these things like he did back in the beginning of the verse where he says you read these things. These things seem to refer to the writings, the teachings, the doctrines of the Book of Mormon. You read these things and as you read them, then you remember how merciful the Lord has been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam even down until the time that ye shall receive these things. So, I like that Tyler's taking the time to pause because the first time I really paused to really look at what this said, because as a missionary, I'm like, we want you to read the Book of Mormon and pray to know if it's true, which is part of what is going on here. But there's a bigger assignment that I'd never paid attention to. So, I have given this assignment out to students, and I will say I have never met a student who has done the totality of the assignment. And listen to what goes on here. I would that ye should remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men. Now, there's a time stamp. Okay, so remember God's mercies and begin with the creation of Adam, even down until the very present moment. So, really consider that. How long would it really take to remember? every act of mercy God has ever done from Adam and Eve until now. I don't think any of us have enough years in our lives to be able to do that. And definitely the Book of Mormon contains many examples of mercy. The Bible contains many examples of mercy. But the scriptures that we currently have do not contain the totality all of God's mercies. There are mercies that you have in your life. They're not sitting in Scripture, but they're nevertheless true. And this is a long assignment. So, take seriously that God wants you to know of his mercy. Here's a factor to consider in this process. Of all of the attributes of God that Moroni could give us this, this extensive homework assignment to ponder. He could have said, ponder how powerful God has been. Ponder how just he's been. Ponder the, the foreknowledge of God. Ponder any of these attributes. It's interesting, the one that Moroni focuses on is the mercy of God, how merciful God has been unto the children of men, all the way down through, through time. And then he says, and ponder it in your hearts. Brothers and sisters, I, we, we could be wrong on this, but to me, the it isn't pointing to ponder the Book of Mormon in general terms. The it, for me, 
is pointing to me pondering God's mercy, how kind he is, how long-suffering he is, how willing to forgive he is to the children of men, beginning with Adam and Eve all the way down to our day, as we've been talking. Now, it's fascinating to add to that this bookend idea. Here we are in the final chapter of the book, Moroni 10. If you go back to the very beginning of the book, Nephi, standing at the opposite end of, the, of this incredible book, at the very beginning, he finishes up chapter 1, the, the beginning chapter, with verse 20, after talking about the, the Jews being angry with his father and wanting to cast him out and stone him. Notice it says, but behold, I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. I like the fact that our first and our last prophet bookend the entire Book of Mormon with the mercy of God. Not just mercy in general terms, but it's the mercy of God. It's, it's this being who has power and he could just smite the earth and it could be destroyed in an instant and, and be done. But God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, right? John 3, 16 and 17. It's, it's God's attribute of mercy that seems to be on the mind of Nephi and Moroni at the beginning and the end saying, all of these stories that we've covered, all of these doctrines, all of these teachings in the middle, they're demonstrating a whole bunch of God's attributes, but the ones that, the, the one that these two are emphasizing is his mercy. And Moroni wants us to ponder it in our hearts because that pondering changes things. Because we're confident, because we're human beings like you, we're going through life in a fallen mortal world like you, of all the attributes of God that we desperately need, it's God's mercy. It's his willingness to, to save us and work with us in spite of our struggles and our weakness, and in spite of the weakness of people around us as well. Notice what happens now, verse 4, when ye shall receive these things, here comes exhortation number two, I would exhort you that you would ask God the Eternal Father in the name of Christ if these things are not true. Notice the way he's using these things. You've now, you've now seen it three times between verse 3 and 4 up to this point. He told you when you read these things, now in verse 4, he started with, when you shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God the Eternal Father in the name of Christ if these things are not true, seems to be implying he's, he's talking about the Book of Mormon and all of its teachings, and by default, the mercy of God is included in that. It's all, it's all there. And we're praying about these things that we've read. Notice that if you, if you go to the grocery store, and you get a cake mix, you buy a cake mix, you could pull out the ingredients and you could throw the box away and not pay any attention to it and try to make sense of the ingredients and, and put something together that would taste good, 
Or you could turn to the back of the box and look for the instructions of how to make what's inside taste good and, and turn out. Uh, the instructions for the cake mix being on the back of the box, the instructions for how to make what's inside of it turn out the best happen to be on the back of it in the very last chapter. He gives you the instructions, and you can choose to follow the instructions, or you can say, I, I don't need the instructions. I'm going to do this my way. God prepared the book, and he prepared the recipe, so to speak, for how to get the most uh, meaningful taste and uh, flavor out of the book in a, in a symbolic way. You'll notice the, the instructions to be followed here are pretty, pretty clear with the prayer. It's not flippant. It's not, it's not uh, something that you just, you're walking down the street and you just cast a casual prayer heavenward, hey, is the book true or not? Notice the qualifiers. If ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Three things. You have to have that sincere heart, the heart in the right place, not a heart that's going saying, I don't like this book, I don't think it's true, Lord, tell me it's not true. That's not following the instructions on the back of the box, so to speak. Sincere heart means that you want to know what God knows. You're not trying to tell God what you already know, or you're not trying to force an answer that you, you anticipate for your own purposes, whatever those purposes may be. Sincere heart, real intent. The intent is that this is not simply a curiosity question. This is a question that is going to engage you and your agency to get you to change, to act differently. That's, you're going to walk away a different person based on the answer. So the sincere heart, the real intent means, God, if the answer is true, then I'm going to need to change some things. I'm going, to, I'm going to need to live differently. I'm going to have to get on the covenant path and press forward on that covenant path and, and have done with lesser things, so to speak, in life. And notice the last requirement here, the other ingredient, faith in Christ. If I leave out any one of those ingredients, it's like trying to bake a cake without one of the three major ingredients. It's not going to work. You can have perfect proportions on the other two, but you've got to have all three of them for it to be complete. I have to trust that Christ is the source of, of all truth, not the world's experts, not the detractors, not the people who have opinions one way or the other. This is between me and God, nobody else. I love what uh, Moroni's doing here is he's stripping away all of the world's experts, so to speak, and saying, don't take my word for it, don't take anybody's word for it, except for God's. Go to him, and here's how to approach him. 
Now you'll notice, you'll notice that you're approaching what kind of a God? It's verse 4 is preceded by verse 3. It's a God who is merciful. It's a God who's been so kind and so giving and so gracious with so many people from the beginning of time down to us, he's setting the stage to increase our faith to go to God saying, wait, he, he will do this. Now, brothers and sisters, there's something powerful here. Uh, I don't think that Moroni intended this to be a one-shot experience. I don't think that you have, up to this point in our English Book of Mormon, 529 pages of scripture, and you'll notice it's after 529 pages that Moroni says, now, now go and ask God if these things are not true. If I work my way through 529 pages of this book, and I get to the end and he, he reminds me to ponder God's mercy and his goodness, and then he says, by the way, you want to ask if these things are not true. If I've been working my way through this many pages and I then kneel down with a sincere heart with real intent having faith in Christ, you can see why Moroni is so absolutely certain with the outcome. If you've done this, he says, look at the wording, he will, can you circle the word will? It's not he might, he's prone to, he's likely to, it's he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. But I don't know how much the promise is sure if we treat it flippantly, if we just say, I don't want to work through, through the book, I just want to know if it's true or false. And so here we go again with these true-false tests where we want God to do most of the work. We want to just go, take no thought, save it be to ask him, just say, is it true or false? I just want to know. Then he's doing most of the work versus saying, hmm, perhaps one of the most important questions I could be asking right here isn't culminating with, is the book true or false? Perhaps this question in verse 4 is an object lesson for my whole life, for my very existence, for the work that I'm willing to put in to the process of discipleship on the covenant path. Brothers and sisters, the real true-false question is much less about the book and it's a whole bunch more about my soul. Am I true or am I false to the truth that is contained in this book, including recognizing God's mercy? Because if I'm true, which is this, then he'll manifest the truth of the book to me, no problem. But if I'm not true, if I'm false in any of these, then I'm going to go through life struggling, doubting, being a skeptic, looking for alternative explanations for how he got the book or for why Joseph was able to produce 531 pages of incredibly rich, doctrinally deep uh, scripture, and, and it's going to be confusing. So, our invitation 
to us as well as to you is to put a lot of focus on me passing the test of true-false, not just continually putting the book or the church or the prophet or the prophets or other people to the true-false test, but holding myself to the true-false test, because then all these other true-false tests are going to naturally flow very, very smoothly. This is such an exciting invitation. We realize how much agency God has empowered us with, that it is our choice to choose to follow him. Let's just talk for just a minute about these words and then review what the word uh, mercy, uh, additional meanings of the word mercy. So, sincere comes from this, uh, we're not exactly sure, but we our best sense is it comes from the words same or one and growth, which is interesting. Are you willing to grow in unity without being divided up? Kind of an interesting word. Real intent. The word underlying this means to hold. So, in means to put something in. So, are you willing to really hold in your, your effort? Real intent is all about, are you willing to not let go of what is true? And, of course, faith in Christ is, it's not faith in men and women, it's not faith in the natural order, all those things might be good, it's focusing on the one thing that matters, and it's Christ. Let's talk just a moment more about the word mercy, because as we look very carefully here at these verses where Moroni wants us to have a sure witness of God's mercy, these things that Moroni and other prophets have preserved are all witness of God's mercy. Now, it's an interesting word. It actually shows up all over the scriptures, and let me show you some examples from the Old and New Testament, where the key thesis in the Old and New Testament is also God's mercy. We often may miss that, but let me show you other words that show up in the Old and New Testament that if we translated mercy back into the Hebrew, it's probably this Hebrew word, hesed. It actually means mercy, but it actually shows up as other words in the Old New Testament. And this word, when you see it, well, actually, when it shows up in the Old Testament, often gets translated into other words, loving kindness, or just kindness, goodness, kindly, merciful favor. All of these are attributes of God, and as Tyler was saying earlier, this is probably the most important attribute that God wants us to know about. It's what he's asking us to know about him. Now, no surprise, these words are all covenantal words. When these words show up in Scripture, they all refer to God's covenant with us, that he has covenanted to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, many others, that he will be merciful, that he'll be kind to us. So, when you see these words, you will know of a quality of God that you can fully trust. But you can also know that these words also point to his unbreakable covenant that he has made with us. He's asked us to be in covenant, and sometimes we struggle to be faithful to that. But what's interesting is that God will never break his covenant, ever. 
And so anytime you see these words, it's also a reminder that God is ultimately and totally and finally and fully true and faithful. And that's why I love this word mercy. And I do think if I only had to use one word to describe God, it would be chesed. So I think to sum, sum this section up, we could do that very simply by saying, when upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you're discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Kind of ties into Moroni's invitation of, of pondering God's mercy. Everything in the rest of this chapter is going to show us God's merciful attributes, his, his hesed, uh, the, the attribute of, of that loving kindness. Look at verse 5. By the power of the Holy Ghost, ye may know the truth of all things. You might want to circle the word all. It's over time that the power of the Holy Ghost is going to help us come to know the truth of all things. And as Jesus taught in the Gospel of John, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Uh, then you find real, real power. Okay? Let's go to the third exhortation in verse 7. And ye may know that he is by the power of the Holy Ghost, wherefore I would exhort you that ye deny not the power of God, for he worketh by power according to the faith of the children of men, the same today and tomorrow and forever. So that third exhortation is just a simple statement of, of us not denying God's power and his, his unchangeable nature moving forward. Verse 8, here's the fourth exhortation. I would exhort, again, I exhort you, my brethren, that ye deny not the gifts of God, for they are many, and they come from the same God, and there are different ways that these gifts are administered. But it is the same God who worketh all in all, and they are given by the manifestations of the Spirit of God unto men to profit them. And then he goes through this list of gifts. The gift to teach the word of wisdom, the gift to teach the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, exceedingly great faith, healing, working mighty miracles, the gift of prophecy, ministering spirits, uh, all kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. You can cross-reference this little section here with 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Doctrine and Covenants section 46, because these are the three places in Scripture that give you these lists, and they're not, they're not exact, they're, they're not the same. They, they share some similar gifts of the Spirit, but each one of them will add some unique elements. Uh, I would also add that there are other gifts of the Spirit that sometimes get overlooked. Many years ago, in General Conference, October 1987 General Conference, Elder Marvin J. Ashton gave a, a talk called, There Are Many Gifts. Let me just give you one paragraph out of that talk. He says, let us review some of these less conspicuous gifts. The gift of asking, the gift of listening, the gift of hearing and using a still small voice, the gift of being able to weep, the gift of avoiding contention, the gift of being agreeable, the gift of avoiding vain repetition, the gift of seeking that which is righteous, the gift of not passing judgment, the gift of looking to God for guidance, 
the gift of being a disciple, the gift of caring for others, the gift of being able to ponder, the gift of offering prayer, the gift of bearing a mighty testimony, and the gift of receiving the Holy Ghost. That's just a small list of these less conspicuous gifts that Elder Ashton uh, pointed out clear back in 1987. The point being, we have heavenly parents who have endowed us with their own attributes and capacities and abilities to one degree or another, and sometimes if you don't have one of these really big ones, then you end up looking at people around you and in the comparison you feel like you don't measure up and you feel inadequate and you feel like you're never going to be as good as her and never going to be as good as him or have the capacities that that group has. It's not helpful. If you, if you can go to God and ask in faith with real intent, if you can go to your patriarchal blessing, if you can go to loved ones and ask them what gifts of the Spirit they've recognized in you, then you can stop comparing yourself and start using the gifts that, that God has uniquely given you to help build up uh, the kingdom of God on the earth from your capacity. Because notice, verse 17, all these gifts come by the Spirit of Christ and they come unto market every man, severally according as he will. Uh, the word severally there, separately, individually. So every unique person gets a gift or gifts from the Spirit of Christ, according as Christ will. And it would be really silly to say to the Savior that he messed up and didn't give you the right gift because he knows what he's doing. Let's go to exhortation number five, verse 18. I would exhort you, my beloved brethren, that you remember that every good gift cometh of Christ. Every good thought, every good deed, every good capacity comes from Christ. Now we jump into exhortation six, verse 19. And I would exhort you, my beloved brethren, that you remember that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that all these gifts of which I have spoken, which are spiritual, never will be done away even as long as the world shall stand, only according to the unbelief of the children of men. It's interesting. If you want to see a decrease in gifts of the Spirit, then just decrease your faith. Stop believing that God gives good gifts, and he says it will be basically a self-fulfilling prophecy you will see a decrease, decrease in gifts and a decrease in miracles if we decrease our faith. Verse 20, wherefore, there must be faith, and if there must be faith, there must also be hope, and if there must be hope, there must also be charity. Going back to his father's talk in Moroni chapter 7, that great talk on faith, hope, and charity. And except ye have charity, ye can in no wise be saved in the kingdom of, not, of God, neither can ye be saved in the kingdom of God if ye have not faith, neither can ye if ye have no hope. You have to have all three. And if ye have no hope, ye must needs be in despair, and despair cometh because of iniquity. But once again, we have a merciful God. We have a God who's willing to forgive, a God who's willing to work with us as we struggle to move forward. Uh, Look now at verse 27. And I exhort you to remember these things, for the time speedily cometh that ye shall know 
that I lie not. For ye shall see me at the bar of God, and the Lord God will say unto you, Did not, did I not declare my words unto you which were written by this man, like as one crying from the dead, yea, even as one speaking out of the dust? Brothers and sisters, there are a lot of theories out in the world regarding how we got the Book of Mormon. There are, there are some who would prefer to see the Book of Mormon as a 19th century production, uh, inspired historical fiction, if you will. Can I just say that in, in fictional works, you don't usually get a character in those stories reaching up through the pages, grabbing you by the shirt front, pulling you in, saying, I'm going to be standing face to face with you at the bar of God. We're going to see each other, and God on that day is going to say, didn't I declare my word unto you through the words of this man right here? That's not worded very much like a, a fictional character. Uh, I want to make it really clear here. The more I have read the Book of Mormon, the more I've come to know and love God, but it doesn't stop there. The reason I've come to know and love God and to recognize Christ and to, to feel the influence of the Holy Ghost in my life is through the lives of these real people, beginning with Lehi and Sariah and Nephi and Sam and Laman and Lemuel and all of that group coming all the way down through these now 531 pages, these people have become my friends, so to speak. They've become real to me, not in a, in a made-up way, but I've come to know them and to recognize their personalities better, and they've taught me, they've influenced me, they've, they've truly been my friends because a friend is one who encourages you and invites you and strengthens you and helps you move forward on the covenant path. That's a true friend, and that's what all of these people have become to me. So when I, when I get ready to close the book again for the who knows how many times, as I get ready to bid farewell to Moroni, there's a sense of gratitude in my heart to these people who gave their life not just to survive in their own time, but to record their thoughts and to follow the directions of the Holy Ghost so that they could benefit you and me today, so many years later. I love, I love this section, this, this seventh exhortation, knowing that there will be a day when I will get to see Moroni and I'll get to see Nephi. He told us he would see us too and these other prophets and their families and thank them for the influence they had on my life and on the life of my family because of the sacrifices they made to get us this book from, from so long ago and uh, so far removed from our own, our own environment. Notice verse 28, I declare these things unto the fulfilling of the prophecies, and behold, they shall proceed forth out of the mouth of the everlasting God and his word shall hiss forth from generation to generation, and God shall show unto you that that which I have written is true. This is coming from the stylus of a guy who is all alone. He's been all alone for at least 20 years and up to 36 years, and he's saying, I, I got nobody else to back me up on this. 
I've got no family or friends who can say to you, yes, Moroni's telling you the truth. So he's relying on the only witness that he does have, which is God. And he's saying, and God will show you that that which I've written is true. He's not going to leave me hanging here. Look at verse 30. Here is our final exhortation. And again, I would exhort you that you would come unto Christ and lay hold upon every good gift and touch not the evil gift nor the unclean thing, and awake and arise from the dust, O Jerusalem. Yea, and put on thy beautiful garments, O daughter of Zion, and strengthen thy stakes and enlarge thy borders forever, that thou mayest no more be confounded. Are you noticing there that we're quoting Isaiah 52 yet again? This, this concept of awake, arise from the dust, put on beautiful garments, take off the beggarly, dirty, dust-filled garments that, that, that this mortality um, invites us to put on. Get up, rise up, put on beautiful garments. Isaiah 52 has been quoted in the Book of Mormon more than I think any other Isaiah passage. It just keeps coming up. This merciful God inviting you to change and to put on these beautiful garments. Now, just a really quick uh, Greek lesson for you, and I understand completely that the Book of Mormon isn't translated from Greek. It's translated from a Hebrew-speaking people who are writing in Reformed Egyptian. I get that. But in a Greek New Testament context, when you get these words put on, they come from the Greek word and duo. And duo looks an awful lot like endow. That's that's what it is to endow. Well, and duo means to put on a sacred garment or to sink into a sacred garment or to be clothed in a sacred garment. So, and duo means to be endowed and all an endowment is, is to put on a sacred uh, garment. Now, you'll notice this coming in a New Testament context when Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. In the Greek, it's endow yourself in the whole armor of God, put it on. And then he goes through the different elements of that armor that clothing, that sacred clothing that isn't metal like a medieval knight. He tells you we're, we're battling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, kingdoms, and thrones, and all these other things that the, these powers of darkness that are coming at us. So, this put on the whole armor of God in, uh, in Paul's context is he's showing you what is involved with being clothed and uh, with the robe of righteousness, so to speak. Now look at this context. Look at verse 31 again, once again, from Isaiah. Awake and arise from the dust, O Jerusalem, yea, and get endowed in thy beautiful garments. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. It's cast off the clothing of the world and put on the armor of light. In another place, Paul says, put on Christ. It's 
the, the endowment and the clothing elements of the endowment are simply symbols of Jesus Christ himself and his power. Where does that take us? That takes us clear back to Adam and Eve when they were found naked in the Garden of Eden. The very first thing that, that we have record of happening at that point is the Savior, Jesus Christ, creating coats of skins or making coats of skins for them to have them put them on, to endow them, to cover their nakedness, to clothe them. Uh, a lamb of God is sent to die so that I can be covered, so that you can be clothed, so that we can be endowed with power, so that we aren't naked and exposed to the law, to the consequences of all of our foolish decisions and our poor uses of agency. Hence, here's this great prophet Moroni. He spent a lot of time alone. He spent a lot of time pondering God's goodness. He spent a lot of time pondering and seeking truth and reading how many how many records, and he knows what he's talking about. So you'll notice his final exhortation here, number eight, started with, come unto Christ. There's, there's no other way. There is no other solution. There's no other path that can lead to, to enduring joy. It's only through Christ. Now look at verse 32. He repeats it. Yea, come unto Christ and be perfected in him. Oh, I love this. I love the fact that Moroni didn't say, get perfect, and once you figured that out, then you're now worthy to come unto Christ. He didn't do that. He said, come unto Christ, step one, come to Christ and be perfected in him. There are many, uh, when I was a missionary, who would say, oh, I can't, I can't get baptized because I'm not, I'm not perfect. Brothers and sisters, the message of our missionaries to the world isn't, as soon as you're perfect, then, as soon as you've had faith in Christ and repented of all your sins and you're now perfect and you have no more problems, now you're worthy to come to the waters of baptism. The message of our missionaries is, come, bring with you all the struggles and a broken heart and a contrite spirit with trust that God that's what faith in Christ is in this context, is his ability to take my imperfection and work with it through mercy. You've all had relationships with other people where it drives you crazy because some people just keep doing the same thing that annoys you over and over and over again and you think, oh, are they ever going to change? And sometimes the answer is no, they don't, and we're not very good at the long-suffering thing. But as you cast your thoughts and your heart heavenward, I hope you can picture heavenly parents and a savior who are looking down at you with smiles on their face. Uh, it's much the same as parents of a little toddler 
And we've talked about this before in a previous episode many months ago, but can you picture parents holding a little child on that first day when that child is going to take its first steps unaided, and either mom or dad lets go, and the little child starts walking towards the other parent and then falls down. Can you picture the parents looking at each other saying, oh no, she's broken. She's never going to be able to walk. She's never going to get this. She's flawed. None of you can picture that. What you can picture instead is parents who go and pick that child up and she falls again, and they pick her up and she falls again, and she falls again, but eventually she stops falling. You can picture a savior who says, I know your propensity to fall. I know your desires to be able to walk. I know that you want to be good, and I'm going to work with that desire, with your trust in me, with your faith in me, and I'm going to work with you on this process of learning how to walk on the covenant path without falling over and over, because every time you do fall, his invitation is the same. It's back in verse 31. Awake and arise from the dust. Put on beautiful garments. Let's try this again. Let's move forward. Notice he says, uh, verse 32 continuing, after saying, come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And if you shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace you may be perfect in Christ. Now pause for a minute. Are you noticing that Moroni keeps giving you these formulas, two or three or four things that need to be included in whatever it is that you're doing? Here he did it again. You have to love God with all your might, mind, and strength. Isn't that fascinating? That God doesn't want your heart or, or your heart and your mind split. He wants all of it. He wants you to use your best thinking. He wants you to use your best strength, all of your might. Then is his grace sufficient for you, that you may be perfect in Christ. And notice he goes on to say, if by the grace of God you are perfect in Christ, you can in no wise deny the power of God. Now, notice verse 33 again, if ye by the grace of God are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, then are ye sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ, which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of your sins, that ye become holy without spot. That is an indication of sanctification without a single spot, um, pure, sanctified in every way, shape, and form. He has changed our very nature. Isn't that a, a neat promise to strive for, that you've allowed Christ to change your heart, to change your mind, to focus your might and your will and your strength on, on building his kingdom rather than building your own or, or seeking your own desires, appetites, and passions. And now he finishes with one of the greatest close, closing statements of any book anywhere. I've, I've said before, I think the Book of Mormon opens with the best opening verse of any opening uh, to any book anywhere. Well, I'm going to say the same thing about its closing verse. 34 is amazing. Now I bid unto all farewell, 
I soon go to rest in the paradise of God until my spirit and body shall again reunite and I am brought forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah, the eternal judge of both quick and dead. Amen. That's very odd coming from Moroni sometime uh, after uh, or sometime around AD 421 that he would refer to the Lord as Jehovah. Just for context, the name Jehovah is an interesting one because in the Old Testament Hebrew, you have the name of God in the Old Testament, Y-H-W-H. It's the unspeakable name. You're not allowed to say it. Nobody can say it. Uh, it's too sacred except for you get the high priest who says the name one time a year. It's on the, the tenth day of the seventh month. It's Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would whisper the name of God while in the Holy of Holies in isolation. One guy, one place, once a year would get to say the name. But other than that, the general people would never pronounce it. Uh, and so, the, the interesting thing is, is when people like William Tyndale started translating the Bible into English, they kept coming across this sacred name of God. It's called the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter four name of God. And he didn't quite know how to put it into English, so what does he do? He takes the vowels from the Hebrew name or the Hebrew title, Adonai, which means the Lord, and he takes the vowel sounds and he puts them in between the uh, consonants for the tetragrammaton. And the Y has a J equivalent pronounced with the Y sound, and the W and the V can be interchangeable. What you end up with is William Tyndale inventing the name or coining the name Jehovah or Yehovah in the early 1500s to represent this unspeakable name of the God of the Old Testament. Well, Jehovah is a name invented in the early 1500s. This book is being finalized by Moroni in 421 AD. It's almost like Moroni would have probably written that, not the, not the 1500s. It's possible. It's possible he could have written the 1500s uh, name, but he's writing this, this name that is so sacred that it's only uttered by the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur, um, which comes in the fall time every year. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as taught in the Book of Mormon, is such that the older I get, and the more I learn and the more I, I dig down and discover, discover the depth and the breadth of this book, the more I realize that it's deeper and broader than I ever thought before. It, it's a gift that just keeps on giving. It, I, I can't find the end of it. This is one of those examples where Moroni, finishing the book in his last verse, tells us that he's going to um, meet us triumphant through the air before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah, and he uses the name 
that is the unspeakable name from the Old Testament, and yet it's the only time in the entire Book of Mormon where a New World Book of Mormon author uses the word. The only other time that the word Jehovah or the name Jehovah appears in the Book of Mormon is clear back in 2 Nephi chapter 20, 22 from Isaiah 12. So, that's Nephi copying the, the tetragrammaton from the, the brass plates. No other Book of Mormon prophet uses the name Jehovah. And here we are in the very last verse, Moroni, as he's sealing up the book, he's giving you a solemn invitation to come into the presence of God. That's what he told you. We'll meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah. He's inviting us. It's as if he's parting the veil through the quarter of time. He's told us before, I see your day. I see your doings. I know what you're doing. And now he's going forward. It's as if he's parting the veil saying, come with me. Come into the holy of holies. I'm inviting you into the presence of God with me. That, brothers and sisters, for me is what this book does, is it invites me into the presence of God, symbolically and ultimately, in, in a literal sense, we're going to be uh, introduced there. The Book of Mormon is full of beautiful spiritual surprises. And the book ends on this word that is so familiar to us, we almost never think about it. The very last word of the Book of Mormon is, Amen. We may think, well, that's exactly how you should end. When we end prayers, we say amen. When we end talks, we say amen. That's just how we say the end. In fact, in the English version of the Book of Mormon, you'll see the end in English farther below. But the word amen does not mean the end. Let me write out for you the meaning of the Hebrew word amen. actually comes from the Hebrew word aman. And I want to write out a number of words in English, that get translated from the Hebrew word aman. And I do this because it's important to understand what Moroni is trying to communicate when he concludes the book with this word. And again, no surprise, this is a covenantal word. It has a covenantal meaning about God's faithfulness and his expectation for our faithfulness. So, here are things to understand. This word, amen, that we say so often actually has an enormous range of meaning that if you look at all these phrases that show up in Scripture, and if you translate them and look at the underlying Hebrew, they all go back to the word amen or aman. It means to be built up, to support, to be firm, to be faithful, to trust or trusting, assurance, believe, steadfast. Verified, continuance, steadfast, or sure. So, as you think about the last word that Moroni uses, and the meaning of that word contains all this beauty, and it's all about the covenants that God has made to envelop us in his love. So, we invite you, as you conclude this round of studying with the Book of Mormon, that you think about God's mercy, you think about his covenants, you think about how he has been 
trustworthy, and he asks us to trust him. He asks us to believe in him. He asks us to be steadfast in the truth, tells us to be firm and to be faithful. And whenever you use the word amen, you are declaring your covenantal faithfulness and assurance that you believe the words of truth that have just been declared to you and that you will live them and own them and be part of those words so that you may experience the fullness of God's love. And now, we come to, to the end of another experience going through 531 pages of my favorite book of all time anywhere. Uh, I, wanna, I want us to finish where we began the year with a quote from President Ezra Taft Benson regarding the, the power of the book. He was the prophet who back in the 80s helped bring this book out of, out of obscurity and make it become such a, an integral part of, of our worship and of our learning. He said, there is a power in the book that will begin to flow into your lives the moment you begin a serious study of it. He didn't say it was down the road. He said, start a serious study of it and you'll feel the power of this book. Uh, I once had a student teacher years ago when I was a seminary pre-service trainer who shared this thought with me. He said, I, I taught my students, what is the most powerful place in the Book of Mormon? I thought, I wonder where you're going with this. I thought, well, he's probably going to say 3 Nephi 11 or maybe 2 Nephi 9 or 2 Nephi 31 or 32 or one of the famous big chapters. And he surprised me. He said, the most powerful place in the Book of Mormon is whatever page you're reading right now because there is that kind of ability for God to bless your life with his mercy through the words of this incredible book. Now, in closing, I want you to know that I know that this book is true. It was written by prophets who saw our day, who were inspired on what to include, inspired on what not to include, inspired on how to include the things that they did and to order them the way that they did. And this book has changed my life and it continues to change my life, and I continue to be in awe of God's mercy, his merits, and his grace through the, uh, through the powerful teachings that come from this book. I'd also like to share my simple witness of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, and it is this. The Book of Mormon is the most doctrinally truthful, literarily beautiful, and everlastingly applicable book the world has ever seen. Thank you for spending some time with us as we've explored this great book this year. We pray that the Lord's richest blessings will be upon you as you continue to move forward in faith on this covenant path and as you seek to come unto Christ and be perfected in him. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>